Some things are just universal. Business is one of those things. Wherever you go, whatever you do, there is some type of business transaction going on. And businesses are everywhere, all over the world. There are also business owners everywhere. And just like any business, there comes a time, no matter what time zone you're in, when you're ready to sell your company. The digital world has no boundaries. They call it the World Wide Web for a reason, right? I'm your host, Randall Sylvie, and this is the Deal Closers Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking about international and cross-border deals. Jason and Ron from WebsiteClosers.com tell me that cross-border deals are becoming much more common these days. They're becoming more common. So we do a lot with the UK, especially since you know Amazon has transitioned over into Europe. It's very, very fast growth over there. So companies that are located in Germany and Spain and the UK, they all come to us. We currently have several clients in London, throughout Spain. We've had several in Germany and France. I'm sure we'll, we'll get some out of Italy pretty soon as well. In addition to those sorts of transactions, we get a lot of tech companies out of the Middle East, especially out of Israel. We tend to see quite a few companies out of Australia as well. Again, back on Amazon, it's an English-speaking location, and so we end up getting a lot of people that live in Australia that sell on the Amazon.com platform in the U.S. Canada is also cross-border. We do a ton of business with uh, you know clients that live in Canada, but they sell either products or services into the United States, still cross-border. You know, so each one of those countries sort of have their own little mix of intricacies. You know, in, in Canada, as an example, doing a cross-border transaction, you know, you got to make a big decision as to whether or not it's going to be a stock transaction or an asset transaction because of the way that the cross-border works with taxes. So, you know, there's all different kinds of ways to go through it. You know, if you happen to be a seller that's in Canada, you know, I'd recommend you give us a call early on so we can kind of tell you about what those intricacies look like. Generally speaking, there's two or three different ways for us to do a deal there to where it's on a stock basis. And that's, you know, much more attractive and efficient for them from a taxation standpoint. And it's it's also the same case for London and the UK. You know, doing things on a stock basis is much more interesting than asset, you know, when you sell your company. And so again, a lot of stuff goes into it, different lending opportunities, uh, different lenders all in, and uh, you'd really have to take care of the type of transaction that you're, you know, going to be looking at for that particular kind of deal. Yeah, and one comment I'd like to make on that is that the the digital world has no boundaries. You know, these people operate all over the world, both buyers and sellers. As an example, we recently did a deal that was a uh, Canadian company in mobile gaming that was purchased by a publicly traded Japanese company. And so realistically, you know, you had issues on communications. They had translators on the phone. In the end, the markets are opening up in a broader spectrum so that we're now able to do deals literally all over the world. It may come as a surprise, but international deals are a lot like domestic deals done in the U.S. The process generally remains the same. There are just a few factors that weigh more heavily. I think the first pillar of that discussion is going to be risk profile. You know, let's say that the company's in Indonesia. We've sold a couple out of Indonesia. Well, that could be a pretty scary prospect for a buyer who realizes that if something goes wrong in this transaction after closing, what are you going to do about it? You know, are you going to hire an Indonesian lawyer to go and, you know, track this person down? 
unlikely. And beyond that, you know, they'll probably just leave Indonesia anyway and maybe go to Panama or some other place where, you know, your opportunity to track them down is, is very limited. So that's a risk profile in an acquisition. So one of the, you know, the dissimilarities is the fact that you're going to try to structure that deal to where some of that risk is shifted to the seller so that you maintain, you know, that openness, you maintain them staying involved. You know, as an example of how you might switch that, you know, let's say that you've got a $10 million transaction. If it was a U.S. buyer, U.S. seller, you know, you're looking at probably 80% of that's going to be in cash at the closing table, somewhere between 70 and 80%. But if you're overseas, you know, you can probably lower that cash component to 50% because they're going to want to switch some of that structured part of the deal into maybe an earnout or they'll roll equity. So instead of, you know, selling you know, 100% of the deal, maybe you sell 50% or 60% of the deal and you roll some equity into it and you combine that with earn out, et cetera. That way the seller's feet is sort of to the fire and, you know, they have a reason to stay involved. There's a lot of money on the line and they only received half of what they should have received at the closing table. So they want to stay involved and make sure that that buyer continues to be, you know, successful as they go forward. So that's a big one, you know, structure alone. Also multiples. Now this is starting to shift a little bit as we do find private lenders looking to operate in the space, but you know, multiples is a big dissimilarity. You know, when you've got, you know, again, someone in Indonesia and someone in the US, you know, you're not going to be able to go for some of the higher multiples that we normally do because of that risk profile. So you're kind of getting hit in a couple different ways with that. But from a buyer standpoint, you know, cross-border transactions can be a very good thing. You know, that could be an opportunity for you. If you pick up a deal for, you know, let's say it's a $10 million and your multiple was three times versus, you know, a $10 million deal probably would have been closer to five times on average. You know, you've got two times multiple right off the bat that you made on that deal, you know, should you either keep it stable or grow it, you know, and sell it again three years down the road. And we actually see a lot of people doing that. You know, they'll buy an overseas company for, you know, three times, you know, three and a half times, something like that. They'll grow it a little bit, come back and sell it, you know, two, three years later at a four and a half, five, five and a half times multiple. And not only did they make money on the transaction, but, you know, they made additional multiple as well. And we we do see that also with our roll-up companies where they're looking to, you know, roll in cross-border transactions. As an example, we've got a lot of people rolling up e-commerce companies right now, especially Amazon FBA companies. And so, We'll get somebody that wants to put maybe 20, 30 million of EBITDA into a rolled up company. Well, the easiest thing to do is to go out and buy these companies for one to $5 million at a two and a half, three and a half times multiple because it's cross border. And then, you know, when you roll it into 25, 30 million of EBITDA, that can become a seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times multiple, depending on, you know, where you're taking that business to sale and where you're exiting, whether it be an IPO or you're, you're going to private equity or small family offices to uh, sell that larger company, you know, you've made a lot of your profit just in the fact that you got a great multiple in the initial acquisition. You know, those are some of the, the nuances. Of course, you know, the other things that are common sense would be a face-to-face meeting is going to be a little bit more complicated. You know, if you're in Indonesia and, you know, you've got your your buyer here in, in maybe in Florida, you got to find a way to do a face-to-face meeting and that's not a, a small event. You know, you've got to deal with visas and those kinds of things. So again, you add sort of to that trepidation, you lower that buyer pool to those that are willing to take the risk on a deal like that. There's definitely differences like that, but the rest of the transaction for the most part is identical. 
There are also logistical factors to consider for these kinds of deals. You could even have communication issues where the phone doesn't work all the time or powers out sometimes. We do see those things happening. We've had Central American clients that, you know, can't call us because their power's out. <laughs> so, you know, obviously that that has to be all taken into account when you're building the valuation of a company. And, and inevitably, you want to make sure you have a, a large enough buyer pool to execute a closing. And that isn't going to happen if you've got a buyer pool that's unwilling to take the risks associated with that particular company. From the perspective of a seller, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, you mentioned it might be more difficult to try to set up a, a face-to-face, but what are some additional steps that a seller might be looking at when taking a cross-border deal? Yeah, you know, like Ron said earlier, I mean, it's a worldwide company, right? I mean, these are all internet companies and it's not odd for a company that's even based in the US to, you know, be overseas a lot when they're, you know, running their company. You know, the vast majority of these companies can be operated from a laptop and a phone. And these days, you know, with a phone, you pretty much have access everywhere. It doesn't matter quite as much as it used to as it relates to these cross-border transactions for the communication style. You know, so if you're, if you're selling a, a U.S. to U.S. buyer and seller, a lot of times they won't even go and meet with each other. You know, they'll do everything via video conference, a lot of phone calls, you know, a lot of texts, and you know, they'll find ways to communicate with each other where they don't have to travel. And that's the norm. Same thing with a cross-border transaction. You know, you, you can use Slack, you can use your phone, you can text. I mean, there's so many ways to stay in touch where the miles apart that you are don't seem so far apart when you have all of this technology available to you to communicate. And so it becomes much easier to sell these from the communication side because initially, you know, long ago, that was, that was a big problem with trying to get people comfortable. But as long as you've got, you know, again, Unless you're in a country where the power is going out, that can be a problem. But if you're in a regular country, you know, a non-third world issue, and you know that you're going to be able to communicate with them on a regular basis, and you've shifted risk to them a little bit so that their feet are to the fire and, you know, they need to get paid as well, then, you know, you're, you're looking at a deal that's very similar to just a regular U.S. seller. Yeah, and one thing about these sellers that they will dig in on a lot of times when they get ready to launch is the tax ramifications. In America, we kind of know exactly what's going to happen from beginning to end from a tax standpoint when it comes to these cross-border transactions. Obviously, every country has different tax scenarios that these sellers have to navigate through. One of the challenges I think as a brokerage we find is that when it comes to accounting on these cross-border transactions in foreign companies, it tends to be a little bit more muddled than what we find in the United States. Oftentimes, the accountants aren't quite up to par. And obviously, this doesn't pertain to every deal that we work on, but it's more than a few times we encounter this. Some of the other challenges we'll see are, obviously, we have to convert oftentimes the currencies. You know, maybe we're working with Canadian dollars, and obviously, we're going to be representing that since the buyers in, in the U.S., we're going to have to have U.S. dollars that we're representing. Also, we have seen tax returns in Arabic, for example. And, you know, if you're doing due diligence on a company, you know, and you're looking at a language you don't even understand, obviously that can be a little bit daunting as well. And the advantage that we have is that we have worked with so many of these groups now that we have a pretty good idea of what they need to do in advance and what they can expect. And a lot of what we do is coaching them and explaining what's going to happen next. Now, 
just on some of the countries that we have worked in or either currently or past clients. You know, we've worked in Poland, the Ukraine, Indonesia, Japan, Canada, Panama, Hong Kong, England, Jordan, Israel, Spain, Germany, Switzerland, Australia. And I, I'm sure I'm missing probably another half dozen countries on top of that. And by having worked in all those, you know, different places, you know, we're getting an understanding of what we can kind of coach our, our clients to expect. This goes back to a basic idea we return to with the guys from WebsiteClosers.com fairly often, setting expectations. They've seen enough clients to know what works. The sellers are pretty much the same. And when you compare a, a U.S. seller to anybody overseas, you know, like I said, a lot of these guys all attend the same groups. You know, they'll, they'll travel around the world to attend teaching seminars or mastermind groups. They're all sort of learning from the same playbook regardless of where they are. Or they're doing online, you know, lessons. But the vast majority of these people are learning to do their job, either through collaboration with others or online. And because of that, they all tend to think the same way too. And like I said before, with the referrals that we get from these mastermind groups, we know that everyone's communicating with each other on what to expect in the sale, which can be somewhat of an issue for us because if someone comes to us that's, you know, living in, like I said, Indonesia... And they've talked to someone who sold their company in the U.S. They're having an expectation of a four to five times multiple for their business. You know, we have to break it to them that it's probably going to be a little bit less of a multiple because of where you are. And, you know, we kind of have to work that out with them because there's not a lot of data out there for, you know, lower middle market and SMB companies. You know, the, the data kind of starts at the middle market and goes up from there as it relates to comparables and so forth. And so if you're you know, overseas and you're trying to figure out what's my multiple going to be, what can I expect? And of course, as we've talked about in other podcast episodes, it, it's all over the board. You know, We have to kind of break down every single company to understand. And everything matters. You know, The category that you're in, the growth rate, where you're located, all of that stuff you know, sort of works into when we value a company. But I will say that the sellers tend to have the same mindset regardless of where they're located in the world. But they do need to understand that, you know, if you're a seller and you're located in a country that may be a scary opportunity for a buyer, you know, put yourself in the buyer's shoes and understand that we're going to have to structure this deal in a way that makes sense for both parties or it's never going to sell. You know, regardless of the multiple you go to market with, it's not going to sell if it's something that someone feels like they're going to lose their entire life over because they've taken that risk. And so we hit risk profile from the very beginning when we start talking to our clients. So let's talk about, you know, what the buyer's going to see. Let's find a way to create a narrative that's going to make the buyer comfortable. And some of the things we do to do that is, and as an example, we'll have our sellers create videos. And so, you know, when it comes time to closing the company, there's a whole set of videos on how the company works logging into, you know, a CMS and walking them through the CMS instead of, you know, having to go back and forth, almost everything is right there. And there's other things we can do too. You know, we can hold up domain names into escrow until a certain amount of time has passed. We can have holdbacks, you know, where we hold some money back, you know, for three to four months to make sure that the transition occurs properly. Because in reality, once the transition is done, you might not need that seller anymore anyway. The difference being that if it's a buyer coming in and they actually want, they're only going to do the deal if the seller is willing to stay on, that's a different ballgame. You know, in that ballgame, again, you're back at this risk profile. You as a buyer feel like you can't run this company unless the seller's running it, and yet the seller's in a whole different world away. And, 
again, it can be an attractive deal if it's structured properly, but it can be very unattractive if it's not. And I can tell you that, you know, the higher you go past 50% of cash for a deal like that, where, you know, the seller needs to stay in the deal, the harder it's going to be to find anybody willing to do the deal. Unless the buyer is big enough to be able to have the wherewithal to deal with a crash should it occur with that particular company. So it's all about structure. It's all about, you know, engaging with the client early on to make sure you're managing their expectations. These deals are different. There's no question about it. Even though, you know, a lot of times our clients don't want to hear that, you know, they're just not in the United States. And most of the mergers and acquisitions, the big ones anyway, they happen with U.S. buyers. Thanks to Jason and Ron for taking the time to talk to me. Feel free to send us any questions you have about mergers and acquisitions. We'd be happy to explore the answers. Till next time, this has been Deal Closers.